It's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. Uh, we are so glad to be together this morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, we'd love it if you take a moment to fill out the Connect card. Um, there are some out on this, this table, um, the welcome table out here. There's also one on our website, veritasdayton.org connect, if uh, you'd rather fill out a Connect card there. Uh, we'd love for you to, to get connected with what God is doing here in our church family. We'd love to be able to pray for you this week. And, and uh, so there's uh, just the availability to fill out that information there on those cards. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke 5, Luke 5, um, we're going to be digging into verse 32, verse 32, and we're going to look at verses 27 um, to 32. Um, actually, we'll, look, we'll go all the way back to verse 17 and then read on into verse 32. Uh, this morning. And uh, again, we're in a, an Advent sermon series, and uh, of course the word Advent simply means uh, coming, means to come. And uh, it's a season wherein we remember that Christ has come, and wherein we look forward to His coming again. Um, and in this sermon series, during the season of Advent, we're just simply asking, why? Why did Jesus come in the first place? Why is this season significant? Why did Jesus come? And we don't have to guess at this because there are several places in, in the Gospels and throughout the Gospels that Jesus tells us, the Son of Man came, or I came to fill in the blank. And so we've come to one of those here in Luke five thirty-two. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy, starting in verse 17 and reading on into verse 32. The evangelist Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this? who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi 
made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this heavenly text that shows us that though we are yet broken and sinful, though we are failures beyond belief, Jesus has come for us. He has come to call us into repentance. And so help us to to grasp the statements and promises of this text and to hold on to them for ourselves, but then also to, to let go of them and hold them out for others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Kent Hughes tells the tale of two Christian denominations in their beginnings, the Methodists and the Salvation Army. In the 18th century, the Church of England uh, had become filled with elite socialites and was rather unwelcoming to the, the common man, unwelcoming to uh, the, the refuse and rabble of society. And uh, so, In 1739, John Wesley was forced to to go outside of the the brick and mortar and to preach the true gospel in fields and in graveyards. Uh, He preached there to the rabble and the refuse who would come in uh, in large gatherings to hear him preach. Some historians note one particularly unique occasion when Wesley was preaching in a field to around 30,000 coal miners after they had got off their shifts at dawn. And evidences of, of God's grace were so, so palpable, you could see it as the, 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 the tears made white streams uh, down the, the coal-covered faces of those miners. These and, and others like them weren't welcome or at least didn't feel welcome in the Church of England parishes, and so many pressured Wesley to start a church of his own. And he wasn't a renegade, he wasn't a schismatic, he... he he didn't want to start a new church. He didn't want to start a new denomination. And, and yet eventually he was kind of forced into it when the Church of England abandoned their American parishioners during the American Revolution and, and then reluctantly started the Methodist Episcopal Church, which spread into the UK eventually as well. And these churches were filled with the rabble and refuse of society, the common, the poor, the undesirable. This, these churches were filled with sinners. However, just a hundred years later, the Methodist Episcopal Church would fall from this place of grace. And, and, and this is shown in how the Salvation Army got its start. William Booth, um, you can go to the, all right, go to the next slide. That's Wesley preaching. Go to the next one. There he is. That is an awesome beard. Um, anyways, so William Booth, he, uh, he was a Methodist who had a heart for the least and the lost. He was a, a, Methodist, a Methodist man. 
He belonged to the Broad Street Methodist Church in Nottingham. And uh, he saw that the least and the lost, the, the, the rabble and refuse of society, weren't coming, that their church was largely filled with wealthy and well-to-do, the respectable, the elite. And so one Sunday, he decided to do something about it. Uh, Richard Collier describes a scene in his biography. Uh, he says, the Broad Street congregation never forgot that electric Sunday in 1846. The gaslights danced on the whitewashed walls, and the minister, Reverend Samuel Dunn, was seated comfortably on his red plush throne. A concord of voices swelling into the evening's fourth hymn, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me savior or I die. And then all of a sudden the chapel's door burst open and through it came shuffling a shabby contingent of men and women wilting nervously under the stony stairs of mill managers, shopkeepers, and their well-dressed wives. To his dismay, Reverend Dunn saw that those whose clothes were not worth five shillings were ushered in by William Booth, who brought them to the best seats, pew holder seats, facing the pulpit. This was unprecedented, since the poor, if they came to the chapel, were to enter by another door to sit at the segregated benches behind the partition which screened off the pulpit. Collier concludes the story by saying, Booth that day learned the unpalatable truth since Wesley's day, Methodism had, come, had become respectable. Just 14 years later, he started the Salvation Army, and Kent Hughes offers an apt warning here. He says, we too must beware. We can become Christianized right out of our Christianity. This is a potential danger facing us as Christians, facing us as a church, that we would become Christianized right out of our Christianity. That we would trade in being a community of repentant sinners for being a club of respectable socialites. Satan, loved, he would love nothing more than that. Satan loves nothing more than when churches are filled with seemingly moral people who know not that they're sinners in desperate need of God's matchless grace. Satan loves it when churches become respectable clubs for respectable people instead of a, a hospital for sinners in desperate need for the great physician. And Christians and communities that fall into this trap have entirely forgotten why it is that Jesus has come in the first place, as he says of himself here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this is, this is a window into the heart of Christ for sinners. If you're a sinner here this morning, I have very good news for you. Jesus came for you. And that's our big idea. The Son of God came to call sinners. And, and we're going to unpack that big idea as we look at the called, the caller, and the call. The called are sinners. The caller is sovereign, and the call is a call to repentance. But first, I want to look at the, the, the call. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He has come to call sinners. Now, but again, to, to begin, we, we need to understand something of the occasion in which this was taking place. Jesus' words here are in response to the complaints of the Pharisees. They were angry. The Pharisees were angry with Jesus because he was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. 
The Pharisees were this partisan group in Israel in those days who were very serious about being good and respectable. They, they, uh, they saw the fact that many Israelites were dispersed throughout the world and the fact that they were under Roman occupation and they concluded that it was because Israel was sinful, which is right. But then, but then they, could, they, they, they were wrong in what they, where they went from there. They thought that the solution was to become the, the kind of moral police in Israel and to keep everyone else in line, to put on a respectable front, to engage in a kind of false repentance, which was only concerned with looks and appearances. They were, they were the kind of moral majority of the day. They wanted to take back Israel for God. And they saw people like sinners and, and tax collectors they were seen as a stain on Israelite society. They'd compromised the, the righteousness of Israel. And so the Pharisees saw it as their job to purge the likes of those folks from Israel. Now, tax collectors were a particularly despicable group. Tax collectors in Israel were Israelites who colluded with the Roman government to collect taxes from Israel. And, and I know that people generally don't like you know, tax collectors, but this goes way beyond these guys just being like the IRS. This goes way beyond that. These guys were seen as traitors because they colluded with Rome, those who had occupied Israel. And they were, they were also ceremonially unclean because they regularly interacted with Gentiles, and so they couldn't attend temple worship like they were supposed to. And worst of all, as a rule, these tax collectors collected far more than they actually needed to from Israelites and then skimmed the extra collections off the top for themselves. These guys were unclean traders who stole from their Hebrew brothers and sisters. And yet when the Messiah comes, who does he go to? Who does he call to follow him? Who does he go to dinner with? Tax collectors and sinners. And, and he even goes as far to say that it's for the likes of these tax collectors and sinners that he has come in the first place. As Dane Ortland recently wrote, and this text shows, time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, the inexcusable and undeserving who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. I recently came across a written record of a sermon preached by this Reformed Baptist pastor from the 1600s named Benjamin Grosner. I, can't, I can barely say his name. Grosner. Grosner. And uh, in his sermon, he's preaching on Luke 24, and he speaks of this, this kind of imagined conversation between Jesus and, and his disciples uh, after Jesus' resurrection, before his ascension into heaven, and that's when he commissions the disciples. And when commissioning them, in verse 47 of Luke 24, he says that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And this is significant, of course, because Jesus was crucified and betrayed in Jerusalem. And yet it's in that very place that he wants this message of forgiveness to start with his enemies, those who betrayed him and crucified him. And so Grosner tells of this, this imagined conversation of what the disciples are supposed to do. Jesus telling the disciples what they're supposed to do if they come across the man who thrust his spear into Jesus' side. And listen to what he says. He says, if you meet that poor wretch who thrust his spear into my side, tell him that there is another way, a better way of coming to my heart, even my heart's love. 
Tell him that if he will repent and look upon me whom he has pierced and will mourn, then I will cherish him in the very bosom which he has wounded. Tell him that he shall find the blood which he has shed to be an ample atonement for the sin of shedding it. And tell him from me that he will put me to more pain and displeasure by refusing this offer of my blood than when he first drew it forth. See, my friends, the, this, the gospel's so counterintuitive in this way. We would think that if God comes to earth, he's gonna, he's gonna be with the respectable and the social elites. We're gonna think that, that, that we would think that he wants to be with the admirable, but it's with the likes of tax collectors and it's for the likes of tax collectors that he came. It's for the likes of those, those Roman soldiers who crucified Christ that he came. It's for those who have utterly blown it. It's, it's for the likes of you and me, sinners, that he came. He came for those for whom it's not too far beneath him to need him in his grace. Now, I, I, I know that some of you present here and some of you watching on the live stream, some of you are not Christians. And perhaps you're here, perhaps you're, you're listening because, because you... You've just utterly blown it and you're desperate. You feel like you've utterly blown, you've met with failure in your life that you didn't even know was possible. You, you feel like you are a complete mess. You don't have any direction in life. You're riddled with guilt and shame. And you're looking for, for anything, for some hope, some peace, some relief. And honestly, it may not feel like it, but that is the exact, that's the best place that you could be in life. That's the best place you could be because Jesus came for the likes of you. Your being a broken sinner isn't a barrier to Christ saving you. It's a prerequisite for it. He is the great physician who came only for the sick. He's the great shepherd who came only for the lost sheep. He's the great savior who came only for sinners. And so if you repent and look on him whom you have pierced and will mourn, then he will cherish you in that very heart which you have broken. If you, if you want to talk after service uh, about what it means to begin following Jesus, I'd love to talk with you afterward. If, if you're watching on the live stream, please go fill out that connect card at veritasdayton.org connect. We'd love to talk with you more and pray with you. But then there's not just something that, for, that those of us who are not Christians need to hear this morning. There's also something that those of us who are already, already Christians need to hear too. And that's this. Don't ever move past this don't ever move past this point. Don't ever move past the reality that you are a sinner who needs Jesus Christ. As you grow and learn in the Christian life, don't fall in the trap of, of thinking that, you know, your fellow church members are bigger sinners than you. Your spouse is a bigger sinner than you. The moment, the moment you forget that is the moment you lose the gospel. The moment you forget that, as Nathan said to David, you're the man. The, the moment you forget, as, as Paul referred to himself, that you are the chief of sinners, the moment you forget that your righteousness apart from Christ is but filthy rags, as the prophet Isaiah said, is the moment you seek to move past the gospel. And I'm telling you, there's never a moment in the Christian life when you need to move past the gospel. 
You don't move past the reality that you are a sinner in need, in desperate need of God's saving grace. In fact, real maturity and growth in the Christian life, it doesn't move past the gospel. It moves more deeply into it. The Christian life is this, this weird anomaly wherein the more you grow, the more you know you need Jesus. The Christian life is such that, that the deeper you get into it, the more you know the depths of your sin and your need for God's grace. It, it works in such a way that the farther you go, the more you see how far you have to go, the more you become like the Savior, the more you know that you need the Savior. In other words, you never grow beyond the need of repentance. But the good news is that Jesus came for sinners. What's more is that he came to call sinners. Look with me next at the caller. Again, verse 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Of course, the call here is to repentance, which we'll look at a bit more and, and try to define in just a few moments. But before we get there, we need to, we need to see that Jesus' call is sovereign. And this is, this is in sharp contrast with our call. You know, when you were getting ready for church this morning and you yelled up to your spouse or children, come on, hurry up, we gotta go, nothing happened. But Jesus, when he calls, something happens. His call, theologians call it it's effectual. Jesus' call is an effectual call. It's not ineffectual. It, it, uh, it, it, it accomplishes precisely what he wants it to accomplish. Jesus' call is effectual. It brings about its intended purpose. And we see a beautiful example of, of this effectual call in the preceding verses. If you look at verses 17 to 26, we see here the story of Jesus healing a, a paralytic man. And this man was entirely paralyzed, couldn't walk, couldn't move. He had to be carried around in a, in a bed by his friends. And so when he and his, his friends hear that Jesus has come to town, this man who heals and restores bodies, they have to go see him. They have to go see him. And, and so they go to the house that Jesus is, is teaching in, but the, the crowd is so massive and the house is so packed that they can't get in. So somehow they find their way up on the roof and they remove some of the roof tiles and they lower this man through the roof into the house. And this is where we see this, this beautiful scene. Jesus looks at the faith of this paralytic man and his friends, and he declares that his faith has saved him. His sins are forgiven. He's delivered from the bondage of his sin and guilt. And the Pharisees are they're upset by this. They're upset, declaiming that only God forgives sins. Who does Jesus think he is? And so to prove that he's actually the sovereign God, the Son of Man himself, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, Jesus does something remarkable. He heals the man on the spot. Verses 23 to 25 record it. Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately, listen, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And on the heels of this healing, the, the, those present in verse 26 rightly say, we have seen extraordinary things today. It's extraordinary. But in all reality, the healing of this man was nothing compared to the miracle that we see next. As we move on to verses 27 and 28, we see Jesus calling this man named Levi. 
And we see some important parallels between Jesus healing the paralytic man and calling Levi. Now, Levi is also known as Matthew. His name is, is also Matthew. Matthew is the apostle who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. And uh, he's known as Levi as well, which is this kind of nickname based on the tribe of Israel that he belonged to. He was a Levite. He was a part of the tribe of Israel, which was supposed to tend to and minister in the temple. And yet, part of what's so despicable about this particular individual is that instead of ministering in the temple, where is he? He's in the tax booth. Pharisees could not think of anyone more despicable than this man, but Jesus apparently could not find him more desirable. And so, as Jesus moves on from this crowded house, he goes through the streets and, and the crowd follows closely behind. Many people were, were seeking Jesus, following him around, and yet notice that Matthew is just sitting in this tax booth. Jesus is in town. Matthew is sitting there in his tax booth. He's not trying to follow Jesus. He's not trying to seek Jesus. He's not even trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Why? Well, as Douglas Sean O'Donnell surmises, it's likely because, like most tax collectors of this time, he bows the knee to the God of money. He's the ancient equivalent of today's Wall Street workaholic who, regardless of the uproar around him, is busy at work, sitting behind his desk, convinced in his mind that time is money. So of all the men, women, and children that day surrounding Jesus, you would think that Jesus would show interest in someone in the crowd, but instead, what does he do? He goes to Matthew, the man who is not going to him. And you see, Jesus sets his sights on Matthew and goes to Matthew, even though Matthew's not coming to him. Jesus completely initiates this interaction. And then what does Jesus say to Matthew? Verse 27, Jesus says to him, follow me. And what's amazing is that on the spot, Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. Verse 28, but then what's more is, is, is the parallel, the language used to describe Matthew getting up and the paralytic man getting up. Luke uses the same exact word in verse 25 for the paralytic man and verse 28 for Matthew. Jesus told the paralytic man to get up and what does it say? Immediately he rose up, the word is anistomy, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And then the exact same word is used in verse 28 to describe Matthew getting up and leaving everything. He rose, anistomy, and followed him. Just as the paralytic man rose from his bed, Matthew rose from his booth. This booth which is so symbolic of the very sin which paralyzed him from following and seeing Jesus. Just as the paralytic man was in need of the physical healing of the great physician, Matthew was in need of the spiritual healing of the great physician, and in his call, Jesus sovereignly granted him what he needed. My friends, part of what we need to see here as we look at this, at Christ's call and, and Matthew's unexpected response, is that Christ's salvation is utterly sovereign. Jesus raised up Matthew in the same way that he raised up the paralytic man by his authoritative and sovereign call. Matthew was an extremely unlikely candidate for becoming a follower of Jesus. But this Christ, the Son of Man, he's God come to us in human flesh, and there's no one who is too lost for his sovereign and saving power. 
There's no one who's too hard a case for him. My personal story attests to this. I, like Matthew, am an extremely unlikely candidate for becoming a follower of Jesus. I don't talk about personal stuff up here very often. I don't want sermons to become unduly about me, but I I want you to know that there was a time in my life where many would have deemed me a lost cause. I, 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 I was violent. I got in fights continually all the time. I was a thief. I robbed people in businesses often. I was extremely promiscuous. I had continual run-ins with police and spent time in jail being arrested. I was an extremely unlikely candidate for becoming a follower of Christ, but the church I grew up in and my friends there and had enough faith in the sovereign call of God to pray for me. And so they prayed for me. And then one summer, the summer of 2008, I, I ended up getting a job uh, delivering drywall with, uh, with one of those friends from church. It was a horrible job. It was awful. It got paid dirt and had to load up several hundred sheets of drywall onto a horrible, awful, broken down flatbed truck and drive it all over southern Ohio and then by hand unload them. It was backbreaking work. It's the kind of job I think Every young man should get at some point in time, puts calluses on your hands and strengthen your back. But I ended up getting this job with a, a friend of mine that I grew up in, in church with, and, and uh, we had a lot of time to talk in that flatbed truck, especially because it was breaking down all the time. So we were just sitting there all the time in that flatbed truck having conversations about Jesus and about the Bible and about the church and about Christianity. And that friend ended up buying me a Bible. And so I started reading that Bible. And through that Bible, I heard the sovereign call. I heard the voice of Jesus Christ calling me. And although I was an extremely unlikely candidate, although I was deemed a lost cause by many, that like that paralytic man, like Matthew, the tax collector, I rose up and started following Jesus. My friends, don't ever think that anyone is ever too far gone for the power of Christ's effectual call. Don't ever think that you're too far gone. Maybe you're thinking that about yourself. Don't ever think that you're too far gone. Don't ever think that anyone can sink too low to be out of reach of God's sovereign and gracious hand. In fact, it's those who have sunk down. It's those who are the lowest of the low. It's those who might be deemed the refuse and rabble of society. It's those who might be deemed with the Apostle Paul the chief of sinners that Christ came for and loves to call into repentance. He loves to do that. His his heart is so drawn to the, the least and the lost of this world. He came to compellingly, sovereignly call them into his redemption and into their repentance. The Apostle Paul reminds the church in Corinth of this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Listen to this. He says, consider your calling. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
Christian, you might think that there are people you know who are too far gone, too messed up, too weak, too broken, too foolish, too sinful. Friend, you might think that you are, and what Jesus is saying to you in Luke 5.32 right here is that no one is too lost to be saved by him. He came for sinners. He came to effectually call them. Now, this sovereign and effectual call doesn't exempt anyone from making a genuine response to Christ. Sometimes we, we hear about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and we think, well, I just don't even need to do anything then. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Christ's call doesn't discount Matthew's response. You know, Matthew's not some kind of robot in which Jesus kind of flips a switch. Christ grants us repentance in his calling, but he does not do our repenting for us. Matthew's repentance is not an act of self-will, but Matthew truly and personally repented. And I know this is getting into the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility and all that, and, and there are all sorts of mysteries that we can't explore. But suffice it to say, Matthew isn't passive. Christ's effectual calling caused Matthew to actively repent, but actively repent he did. We need to actively repent. It is a necessity. And so look with me lastly at the call, the call to repentance. Again, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The call is a call to repentance. And what does repentance mean? The word literally means to turn, to have a change of mind followed by a change of life that's accompanied by sorrow and brokenness over one's sin. And as Christians, we can easily fall into the trap of of thinking that this thing we call repentance is an event that takes place at the beginning of the Christian life. And it is, but it's more than that. Repentance is far more than an event which takes place at the beginning of the Christian life. Repentance is a lifestyle. It's a day in, day out way of life that begins at the beginning of the Christian life. And Jack Miller once said, God didn't declare us righteous because of Christ and then leave us to wallow in sin. Rather, he has an ongoing strategy for us that involves getting rid of more and more sin. That strategy is called repentance, confessing sin, turning to him in, 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 in prayer and in, in our hearts and, and following him. We see a beautiful example of this in, in Matthew's repentance here. This is what we're called to, each and every single one of us. If you're beginning to follow Christ today, or if you've been following Christ for 50 years, here's what you must do. Flee, follow, and feast. Flee, follow, and feast. So first, repentance means to flee. Notice verse 28. What does Matthew do when he's called? He left everything. He left everything. Now, evidently, that that word everything didn't mean everything. I mean, he he still had enough money to throw a party. He still had a house to throw a party in. He still had friends, tax collectors and center friends to invite over for the party. So Luke is talking about something specific here that he left. He's talking about his sin. He's talking about his vocation and lifestyle as a thieving tax collector. He's talking about the, the tax booth and all of its bondage. He's talking about the sinful lifestyle that Matthew was living. Matthew made a decisive break with his old life. He fled from his sin. And now some of you are being called right now to get up out of your own figurative tax booth. Your tax booth might be internet pornography. Your tax booth might be being a nitpicky, hypercritical, self-righteous person. 
It might be an unhealthy obsession with partisan politics. Your tax booth might be workaholism, which encompasses your whole life. Your tax booth might be a a materialistic consumerism or sexual immorality or whatever. And what Jesus is saying to you right now is to make a decisive break with it. Flee from it. Run from it. Turn in the opposite direction and run. Run for your life. Flee. But then repentance involves not only fleeing, but following. Following. Next we see Matthew follow. Again, verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. He rose and followed Jesus. Repentance not only involves running away from sin, as if a, a new kind of morality would suffice. That's not it. Repentance involves running away from sin and running to Jesus, making a beeline for the Christ. What does it mean to follow? Well, it means to learn to do life from Jesus. It means to become his apprentice and life. Repentance means to say to Jesus in desperate prayer, I've blown it. I no longer want the sin that's wrecked my life. Run my life for me now. Whatever you say, I'll believe. Whatever you promise, I'll trust. Whatever you command, I'll obey. I'm trusting you to run my life for me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And you have to understand that this is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian because Jesus not only wants to set us free from sin's guilt, he wants to to set us free from sin's power as well. Jesus loves us so much that he invites us to come to him as we are. But he loves us too much to let us stay that way. And so we're called to flee and to follow, to learn to do life from Jesus, to believe him, to trust him, to obey him. And then lastly, we see Matthew feast. It's fascinating to see in Luke's gospel how many times repentance culminates in a party. And our text this morning is is no exception. You might rightly say that repentance parties. Repentance sings. Repentance feasts. Repentance culminates in joy. As Brian Chapel once said, he's got this wonderful sermon, Repentance That Sings. He said, in your ears, what does repentance sound like? We think of groaning and groveling, of grinding teeth and weary resolve. But what does repentance really sound like? When it has completed its work, it sounds like joy. Yes, there's grief and sorrow over the sin that made our repentance necessary. But there is joy for what we have gained Because in fleeing sin and following Jesus, we have gained far more than we've left behind and far more than we can even imagine. We have gained Christ. In him, we have gained the forgiveness of sins, which gives us peace with God and peace within our consciences. We have gained God's full acceptance. We have gained the hope of eternal life. We have gained a family of brothers and sisters to do life with. We have gained life and joy and peace and all this and more in Christ. That's why Matthew throws a party. That's why Matthew feasts. That's why we feast. That's why we party for the joy that we found in Jesus Christ. I just have to ask you, do you know anything about this? Do you know anything about this joy? I'm not talking about trite happiness and passing feelings of pleasure. 
you want that, just get a bottle of wine and watch Parks and Rec. I'm talking about a sustained joy, a, a sustained joy in Jesus and who he is and what you've gained in him. And the reason I ask is because I, I know that some of you are not experiencing this kind of joy. Many of you have chalked it up to the crap year we've had. And it's been a crap year. And maybe I shouldn't say crap from the pulpit, but it's been an awful year. The difficulties we've faced and, and uh, with COVID and all the rest of it. But I want you to know that the joy found in following Christ is a joy that remains even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Hard circumstances cannot take away joy found in Christ. It, it cannot take away the joy we find in following Jesus. But you know what can? Not keeping with repentance. Christian, it's quite likely that the reason you're failing to experience real joy right now is because you've not been keeping with repentance. You've not been keeping short accounts with God and others. You've not been repenting. As the Apostle Peter exhorts in, in Acts 3, 19 to 20, he says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing, refreshing may come in the presence of the Lord. That's where joy and refreshment comes from. It's found in the presence of the Lord we gain when fleeing sin and following Christ. Repentance feasts. Then we should also note one more thing about Matthew's feasting here. Notice, notice that he invites his friends. And I won't belabor this point because Dan talked about it so well last week. But notice that Matthew, he throws a party for the, the joy found in Jesus and he invites his friends. Who are you inviting into the feast? Who are you inviting into the joy of repentance? As Dan asked us last week, who are you befriending and bespeaking the gospel to? Who are you eating meals with and inviting into Christ? And I know it's COVID times. I know that's significantly more difficult now than it was before and Lord willing will be in the near future. But this is always something we ought to be considering. I came across a survey this last week that stated that that new believers are far more likely to share the gospel with their friends and loved ones than those of us who are who have been following Christ for some time. And actually, the consistency with which Christians share their faith drops significantly after they've been following Jesus for just two years. Which is fascinating because in the first two years, you don't know anything. You don't even know what you're talking about half the time. You're just so excited about Jesus and you're telling everyone about him and, and all these people are, are hearing you and they're following you into church and into life in Christ and you don't even know what you're talking about. And at the, at the two-year point, evangelism plummets. Why does that happen? Why does that happen? I don't know what to chalk it up to other than we just lose the, the love and wonder and awe of the gospel. We become Christianized right out of our Christianity, as Kent Hughes says. Could it be that, that it happens because we, we choose to become more respectable than repentant? 
This can happen. It happened to the Methodists after 100 years. It happens to, to Christians, it seems, in just two. And so my hope and my prayer this morning is as we look here at Luke 5.32, that they, are, that they would be smelling salts for us. First, that it would awaken us to the reality that we are sinners. That we are sinners. You are sinners. I am a sinner. And that we need Jesus. That we need his forgiveness. That we need to keep with repentance. But also that we would be awakened to the need to invite others into the feast. As one pastor said it, that we would be like beggars who have found bread and are telling other beggars where to find bread. We would invite others into the joy we found to invite others to, to flee, to follow, and to feast in this life in Christ. In other words, my, my hope and my prayer is that we would be a church that lives according to the reality that we are sinners that Christ has come to sovereignly call into repentance. We're not a club of respect, respectable socialites. We're, we're, not, we're not a community, a club of respectable socialites. We're a community of repentant sinners who hold out Christ, the friend of sinners, to a world in desperate need of him. Friends, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. May we hear his call ourselves, and may we be a means of it going out to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the call here in Luke 5, 32. We pray that you would ignite in us such a passion for the glory of Jesus Christ, which leads to repentance and also results in others being called to repentance. We pray that, that you would blow by the Spirit on the embers of our hearts and ignite them into a, a huge flame, which is warm and attractive and inviting so that others would hear and believe and obey the truth of the gospel. Protect us from becoming respectable. Protect us from becoming cold. Protect us from becoming concerned with mere appearances. But help us to be those who continually in our hearts and in our lives flee our sin, follow Jesus, and feast for joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.